thing that Christ was our only hope, often come to the understanding every day more and more of just how sinful we still are in light of Him. You know, the truth is, is that no matter where we're at in our Christian walk, we still have not obtained. And we need to live life as if that's the case. Paul, actually writing here to the church at Colossians, is going to say some things to them in this, this book here, where he, at the beginning, tells them he's very thankful for their, their faith, their testimony, the knowledge of the truth that they've come to know Christ as Savior, And then, very quickly, he's going to say, but there's some other things that I want to remind you of. I want to make you known to you. I want to have this in the forefront of your memory. And I think it's some things this morning that we, as Christians, as individuals, but also as a church body, need to have at the forefront of our mind. See, we live in a day and age where the word Christianity is kind of thrown about a little flippantly. We live in a country where, yes, it has been known to be a... Christian country. The problem is, is that many people who use that word Christian really have never given the time to truly think about all the implications, all the truth, all all the responsibility, all, all the things that come with that. And so we have people in this country who will say, oh, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian. But they've never given anything of their life to God. Oh, they, they may have even come to the place where they have accepted Christ at some point in time in their life. But since then, there has been little movement towards the things of God and away from everything else that has been and who they used to be. We know that Colossians is one of the classic passages, one of two actually, along with its sister epistle, Ephesians, where God directly tells us to put off the old man and the things regarding and to put on the new man. We'll see those in just a few moments. But this morning, if you are one who takes notes, as I encourage all the teenagers, and I look at my teenagers down here, and not a single one of them are taking notes, at least the guys. Young ladies, good job. Uh, You could put a title on this message if you wanted to. This simple phrase, intentional Christianity. The word intentional is an adjective. It literally means done on purpose or deliberately. It's sad that in the day and age we live in, we have to now distinguish between what is Christianity and what we are now saying is intentional Christianity. See, if we were to go back to the, uh, the, the first century church, there was no intentional Christianity versus Christianity. It was just Christianity. But the truth is, is that we live in a day and age where there are people out there who claim to be Christian. They, 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 they'll allow themselves to live the Christian life, so to speak, or go through the Christian routines that are the normal basis. And, and I, I, you know, I thank you. I understand that many of you have worked long, hard weeks, and yet you still find the time on a Sunday morning to come and to come to the church service and to have to look up here at me and and the light shining off this bald head and look at this ugly face and and sit here this morning and come and open the word of the scriptures and listen and sing the song. And And I'm thankful that you're here. I am. But that does not make us a good Christian. Coming to church on Wednesday night 
is a wonderful thing. And may I remind you that it's needed and, and we need to have our hearts and our souls and our lives refreshed and renewed by the Word of God on a weekly basis because many of us, if not all of us, work and live and are around the filth of this world constantly polluting us and dragging us down and the discouragements of this world. And we need a service like a Wednesday night service to help encourage us and strengthen us and, and, and get by more than just on a Sunday morning service. And, and I say that's a wonderful thing. And for those of you that that attend, or maybe you say, I can't, I, I work. We understand those things, and I applaud you for that. But also, by the way, I remind you, that doesn't make you a good Christian. The offering plates went around just a little while ago, and there's no doubt that our church is a giving church. Look around us. Look at what God has allowed us to have by the giving of our church and by the, the tithes and the offerings that have been given by you, the people, and I applaud you for it, and I say thank you for it, and, and I, it's wonderful. But by the way, giving your offering doesn't make you a good Christian. See, we have, we have narrowed Christianity down to this list of things that we do rather than a life that we should live. And Paul in the book of Colossians goes through the book here as we'll look in just a moment and he begins to reveal some things and as we peel back the layers of this book we'll start to see a few things that God shows us in this word through Paul writing to this church at at Colossae and saying this is what Christianity looks like. And I'm saying to you, it's time that we as Christians in the 22nd century or wherever we're at, 21st century already, and now it's going into the 22nd century, we should be living Christianity, yes, but not 21st Christianity, but 1st century Christianity, which is intentional Christianity. Meaning that when I live my life, I don't live the Christian life by chance. If it just happens so, or through a routine. But I am deliberately and on purpose doing everything day to day, moment by moment, with the intents of living my life to and for Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, Paul writing, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, Grace be unto you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. And ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, did not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath, del- who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, 
Paul writing here in the first part of this book is saying to these believers, he's saying, we've heard of your faith. We've heard of your love for the fellow saints. We've heard of the, 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 the fact that you've come to know Christ as your Savior and we want you to know that we pray for you. We're encouraged by it. And we think of you. And we care for you. But not only do we care for you and we pray for you, if you look in verse 9, he says, For this cause we also, since we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you. He says, not only are we praying for you, but because of the fact that we've understood that you've come to know Christ as your Savior, and because you have decided that you're going to take a stand and proclaim that you are a Christian, he says here, we desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. In other words, what Paul is saying to these, to these Christians is he's saying, we understand that you have come to know Christ as your Savior, and we are rejoicing in that. We're praying for you. But because you have decided to take that stand and say, I'm a Christian. May I remind you that the word Christian in those days was not something that was toted about and waved as a, a good thing, so to speak. It, it, was, it was a derirement. It was, it was a... A, a, a term of uh, derision and, and disgust, and um, people would look at you and say, "Oh, you're just a Christian," and it was a it was a not a thing that people would be proud of necessarily to say, "Oh, I'm a Christian." It wasn't something that those other than the Christians would stand up and say, "I'm a I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ." Today, in the age we live in, people use that term as like, well, it's a, it's a badge of honor. It's something that I have. It, it's a, it's a uh, merit badge on, on my lapel pin, so to speak. It's, oh, I'm a Christian. In those days, it came with persecution. It came with judgment. It came with trials. It came with difficulties. It came with so much more. And Paul is saying, for you, this church that has stood out and you've stood up in this Roman uh, this Roman town, this Roman village, this, this place of Greek influence, and you've decided that you are going to stand and say, we are proud to proclaim the name of Christ. We pray for you. But there's other things that we want you to be aware of. We want you to know the will of God in all spiritual knowledge and understanding. And that's why I'm writing you this letter. Paul is good so many times when you're reading his epistles at the beginning of his books of giving his reason, so to speak, of why the book is being written. He's saying, so that you stand fast, so that you understand that there's more than just claiming a name, that yes, you've come to know Christ as your Savior, but there's so much more. I'd like to take just a moment and write you a letter so that you see everything that comes with it. And this morning, I'd like to, if you don't mind, just walk through the book of Colossians together as we look at the verses and just see a few things that you and I can see that when it comes to intentional Christianity, that we need to be reminded of and remember as we live our lives. First thing I'd like for you to see, number one, is that intentional Christianity recognizes and emphasizes the preeminence of Christ. Now, I will give a forewarning. If you're taking notes, there's 11 points. Please don't gasp. I will move quickly. Lord willing. Colossians chapter 1, I want you to look with me at verse number 19, uh, verse number 15. 
So Paul said here, we're writing, I'm writing to you because I want you to understand that there's so much more than just this faith of profession, the forgiveness of sins when it comes to Christianity. Verse number 15, he says, uh, talking about uh, verse number 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. It's so important for us to start here, not only just because Paul starts here, but Paul understood something. That without this truth and without this understanding established in our lives as individuals, everything else does not have a foundation to stand upon. Because Christ being preeminent is the foundation. If Christ is not preeminent, then everything else does not really matter. The word preeminent is a term that we've kind of lost a little bit of the understanding of in in the true significance. When you look up the definition of the word preeminent, yes, it says the first. It's interesting, though, that I find that when I look it up, I I like to understand the words and how they they apply because for me, it's a deeper study. The word preeminent is not meant to be a noun. In other words, it's not meant to be the first place. It's meant to be a verb. In other words, what, what, what God is saying here about himself and Paul writing under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit is pinning the words when he says that he might have the preeminence. He's saying that God may always actively be in the first place. It's not a position that he holds, it's a place that he is. There is no first place spot because it's Christ. And it's not talking about a matter of where we give our priorities or where we lay things. It means that in all things, Christ is preeminent. In the way we talk, Christ should be preeminent. Meaning, the first thing we talk about, the priority of what we should discuss, the ones whose name should be the most in our mouth, should be Christ. Christ should be preeminent in the way that we work and the way we go about ourselves, the way we carry ourselves. In other words, that when we go out, we shouldn't go out flippantly anyway, just whatever, it's casual, it's my life, I'm just having a good time. We should go out with the mind that I am a picture and a representation of this to this world of Christ because He is first. The matter that we handle our money, we don't handle our money in a flippant way or in a casual way and saying, well, it's okay, I've already given God what belongs to Him. No, you've given God back what He's requested and said in the Scriptures. The rest of it still belongs to Him and it's still His to determine what to be done with it. It's not yours to do with it as you please because Christ is preeminent. 
See, so often what we do is we act and we see Christ as preeminent and it's an allotment. It's an amount of time. It's an amount of space. It's an amount of money. It's an amount of effort. It's an amount of talent. And once we've given Christ His, then everything else is ours. And that is not what this term preeminent means. This word term preeminent means that God, He is God over all and that He commands it all and He dictates it all. Not as a dictator, but as a loving caring, gracious God who gives us love and gives us mercy and gives us grace and He gives us all these things and because He is preeminent, everything else falls into its appropriate place. Sometimes what we do is we think that if we'll we'll give God what is His portion, then everything else will be okay. But it's not a portion, it's all His. He's preeminent. So why are you emphasizing this? Because if I do not emphasize this now, then everything I say the rest of this morning, and it's not about me, everything God says this morning really won't matter. Because it all can be justified away if Christ is not preeminent. The reason why the church has gotten into the situation, and let me say this, the reason the American church has gotten into the situation that it is, is because they've stopped putting Christ preeminent in place. Not the first, oh, we glorify and magnify God, but He's not preeminent. He's just first. And there is a difference. It's interesting, this is the only time in all of Scripture that this word is used. This one place. And notice the context. Creation. Praise, government, the church, over it all, it's Christ. But it doesn't stop with just creation. It doesn't stop with just government. It doesn't stop with just church. Look at what the Bible says. In verse number 16. For by Him were all things created, that's creation, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones, here's the government, or dominions, or principalities, or powers. But it's personal. All things were created by Him and for Him. Can I remind you that your existence is here not because God was gracious to you and He wanted you to have a life, but your existence is here for Him? Your purpose in your creation was for the glory of God. God did not create you and then find some task for you to do. He had a task for you to do and He created you for that task. It's to proclaim Him. It's to glorify Him. It's to honor Him. It's to magnify Him. Colossians is one great theme. It's Christ. The head. The preeminent one. We've got to stop looking at God as a placeholder in the first spot and start looking at Him as the one who deems everything else. If you will, we need to start kind of looking at it as we would a hierarchy chart. There's God, and then there's everything else. And if He has His rightful place, everything else falls into its place. So the first thing intentional Christians and Christianity does is it recognizes and emphasizes the preeminence of Christ. Second, Intentional Christianity understands that we have been reconciled before this almighty, holy, unchanging, preeminent God. 
Colossians 1.19 says this, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked words, Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. So why, why so much significance on all the, the adjectives of God in that phrase that we have to understand that we've been reconciled before the almighty, holy, unchanging, preeminent God? Because only a holy God can make us holy. Only a holy God can make us unreprovable. And only an unchanging God can make us right. And it can be consistent throughout all of time. It doesn't matter if it's today. It doesn't matter if it's ten years from now. Or it doesn't matter if it was a hundred years ago. God is unchanging. And He has been unwavering in His desire to reconcile man unto Himself. It's interesting in this passage, God tells us we we get so high on ourselves. Humans really love the idea that we are the star crowning achievement of creation. We like to act like all the world was created for us. I mean, think about it, right? Well, it was all good and then Adam and Eve. Well, God came and what did he do? Well, he reconciled man. Wait a minute, what did the passage just say? He didn't just reconcile us. Christ reconciled all of creation back to Himself. Can I tell you this? And you'll agree with me. You know it. You've never heard it before. We messed everything up. You want to know why there's, sin, there's, there's sickness and, and cancer in this world? Because of our sin. You want, you want to know why there's, there's horrible earthquakes and, and tsunamis and, and, and hurricanes and these ter- terrible f- floods and all these things? Because we sinned and we messed everything up. Our sin ruined God's creation. And God said, I still love you enough, I'm going to reconcile it and make it right. That word reconciled, it's an accounting term. It means to bring everything back to the way it was. Oh, there's coming a day. The Bible tells us that Christ will once again step foot on this world and He will bring everything into perfect peace the way it was when God created that garden. It's amazing to think. That God desires to reconcile you and I to Himself. But not just you and I. Everything. Why? Because He's the preeminent one. He's holy and He's unchanging. And as Christians, we need to understand and never get past the fact that that God made me right. I messed it up. I ruined it. If it was placed in my hands, it'd be ruined over and over and over again. But God comes along and He says, I have something to tell you. I'll make it right. I'll redeem it. I'll put it back in its place. And it's not you who's been sinned against. I'm the one who's been sinned against, God says. But just because I've been sinned against doesn't mean I still don't love you and I don't care for you. I do, and I do so much that I'll make it right with the blood of my dear son on Calvary's cross. I'll redeem it back to myself. I'll put it back the way I intended. And I'll show you that the whole time I can do it in a loving way. 
When we're left up to ourselves, when there's a a disagreement between one another, a family member, a friend or something, when it comes to reconciliation, we don't do it the right way half the time. Half the time, I'm not saying I'm not saying I'm sorry till they say they're sorry. I'm not forgiving them till they forget ask for forgiveness. Man, if God forgave and reconciled the way we did, there's no point in any of us being here. But he doesn't. Because he's a holy God. He's an unchanging God. And he's a loving, gracious God. And if you're here this morning, and you've never come to the place in your life where you've heard, or maybe you've never come to the realization that your sin means that you will be separated from this God for all eternity, I'd like to tell you this morning that God wants you to know that he loves you. There is no place, no thing, no amount of bad deeds or wrongdoing that you could ever do that would take you past the love of God. He desires to show you how much He loves you. He did it on Calvary's cross. And He said, your sins can be forgiven you. It doesn't matter how far gone you are or how far you think you are. I love you that much more. Because I am the holy, almighty God. Can I remind you that? God is almighty. So far that he can take your sins and he can cleanse them. And the Bible says that he'll never remember them against you anymore. If you don't know Christ today as your Savior, this point right here is for you. This Almighty God wants to reconcile. He wants to put you back into a relationship that he intended you to have when he created the world. And he loves you. Intentional Christianity recognizes and emphasizes the preeminence of God. It understands that we have been reconciled before this unchanging God. Number three, intentional Christianity by faith continues while remaining grounded and settled in truth. Colossians 1, 23, it says, If you continue in faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, And which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I and Paul made a minister. He keeps going on. He says, And who now rejoice in suffering for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh, for his uh, body's sake which is in Christ. He keeps going through all these things, talking about this mystery of the church, and the, the fact that the gospel had become to the Gentiles. All the way down into chapter number 2, for sake of time, if you'll look at verse number 4 with me. He says, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. It's interesting. In those verses of 123 all the way to 2.8, you'll start to begin to see this this dichotomy, uh, this idea of opposing ideas, continuing and growing, remaining and settled, continuing and growing, established and built, rooted And there begins to get this idea of two opposing almost ideas or thoughts that how can we grow but also stay? 
Well, the truth is, is that if we'll learn to remain and established and stayed in the truth that we've come to know about Christ, then we're able to grow. See, we live in a day and age where a lot of, uh, a lot of Christians are wanting to proclaim, they're wanting to grow, they're wanting to expand their knowledge of God and who He is and what the Word of God says. But the problem is, is they're giving up ground the whole time that they're growing. In other words, that they come to a new idea and they say, well, this must be true, so I'll give up the things that I have established and learned in the Scriptures. Some of you looking at me and you may say, I don't know what you're talking about. Praise the Lord, you don't. Some of you in this room do know what I'm talking about. You have friends, you have loved ones, you have uh, colleagues who have pressed forward into new thoughts and new ideas of old terminology such as this new idea of Calvinism and the things that are going on. And the whole time they're giving up the fact that God loved them and that He came for them and that He desires that all men would be saved and that the Scriptures say that God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And instead of staying rooted and grounded in that truth while they move forward, they begin to move forward and they slowly give up ground. Intentional Christianity says, no, if this doesn't reconcile with God and His Word alone, it doesn't matter who the most articulate person is, it doesn't matter how well they say it, if it doesn't add up, if it doesn't compare when I add Scripture to Scripture, then something must not be right. So let me stay with what I know to be true until God reveals otherwise that I need to move past that. That's not being... Left behind, that's not being passed over. That's staying with what God has said in His Word and remaining steadfast and grounded. But it's continuing to grow. Grow in the knowledge of Him. Grow in His grace. Number four, we understand in intentional Christianity that we are complete in Christ and in Him we find our identity. This is very important. We live in a world that wants to talk about identity. It's been a mess this past few weeks. It's been nothing but the, the catchphrases and all the, the enamoring of the talking of this idea, of this identity. Identity, 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 identity. Colossians chapter number 2 verse 9, the Bible says, For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him which is the head of all principality and power. The truth is, is the reason why so many people are searching and looking for an identity is because they've never come to the realization of the truth that they will never have their complete identity understood till they are found complete in Christ. There's husbands and wives that that get married and, and a wife begins to think, oh, I'm complete now. I now have my husband. This is who I am. No. We're only complete when we have Christ. Husbands... We're not complete when we find our wives and say, well, I am the husband of so-and-so. That's not my identity. My identity is that I am, in, I am in Him, and in Him alone is when I am complete. We could spend the whole morning literally on this one idea, this one thought, this one topic, that in the preeminent one, I am found in Him. Who am I? I am the redeemed Son of a holy God. I am the one that was lost and is found. I'm the one that was astray and has been lovingly brought back. That's who I am. I am a redeemed sinner 
who is loved by a gracious and merciful God. Every single one of us in this room has one identity that overarching stands above all the rest if we know Christ is our Savior. It's a loved child by a gracious God. Can I remind you that there's a first point and it holds over all the others? It's that He's preeminent. And that preeminent one loves every single one of us. Not unequally. Remember that God says in His Word that He's not a respecter of persons. In other words, He doesn't like you because you have hair more than He likes me because I have none. So all the bald people in the room said, Praise the Lord, glory to God. He doesn't like the talented more than the, the ones who can sing more than the ones who can't sing. He doesn't like the, 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 the articulate ones more than the unarticulate ones. He doesn't like the educated more than the uneducated. He loved us all equally. And He always has. So much so that He gave each and every one of us the love of Christ when He died on the cross. And in that, we have our identity. When we look at each other, we shouldn't look at each other as ones of, well, that's so-and-so and they're, they're a Sunday school teacher or they're this. We're all the children of Christ. We are all the body of Christ. We are all the church because in Him our identity is found. We are complete in Him. If you go through your life and you say, I just don't know, something doesn't feel right. I don't feel complete. I don't feel like I've got it all. I feel like I'm missing something. Check your relationship with Christ. It's probably God putting in you a desire to be closer to Him. You say, yeah, but I'm at the closest I've ever been to God. I I pray more than I've ever prayed. And I walk with God in the Scriptures more than I've ever walked. Praise the Lord. All He's doing is calling you closer. Calling you closer. Calling you closer. If you're here this morning and you say, I feel lost. It's interesting the terminology that, that the world uses. And trying to force this upon even the children and saying, well, I just don't feel right in my body. That's, that's the term. I just don't feel like I belong in this body. Well, the truth is, is that what it is, is that you haven't come to the understanding that your body is sinful and that God has a purpose for it greater than what you think you have for yourself. I say that with all loving kindness. I'd love to take the scriptures and show you what God really has for you. Because He did make you. He made you beautiful and wonderful and great the way that you are. And He has something far greater than you could ever imagine for you. Because we are complete in Him. We've got to move here. Number five. Intentional Christianity learns to understand that we are free in Christ. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. The Bible says in verse number 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of new moon or of Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but of the body of Christ. Verse number 18, Let no man beguile you in a reward and a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And he keeps going. Verse number 23 says, Which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility of neglecting of the body, nor in the honoring and the satisfying of the flesh. What he's saying in this passage is there's a time, there's, there's these Jewish people or there's these Pharisees, if you will, that are saying, well, if you truly know God, then you'll do this. Well, if you truly know God, you will only worship on the Sabbath day. If you truly know God, well, then you, you're, you're talking to angels, right? 
If you truly know God, then you won't do certain things with your body. You won't go certain places. You won't pretend. And he's saying, if any man comes to you and they're telling you this, putting on you an unjust burden that God has not said, beware of them. Because they're not speaking of the love and the freedom that we have in Christ. And so often people get afraid of that term freedom in Christ because people want to construe that. We're not free to live however we want. He's preeminent. But I'm not bound to you in what I do. I'm bound to Him. And I am to live unto Him and not unto you. My freedom is in Christ. I am free from the chains of sin. Praise the God who has saved us. But I'm also free from the burden of being chained to anything. Legalism died when Christ set us free from it. The law was legalism. This is what you must do in order to be right with God. Christ comes along and says, in order to be right with me, accept me and what I've done. And Bible, a true intentional Christian, lives in this idea and understanding that I am free in Christ... Not to sin, not to live the way that I want, not to go out and do whatever I please, but I'm free in Christ to live unto Him for His honor and for His glory. An intentional Christian, chapter number 3, verse number 1, sets their time, affections, and attentions on God and the things of God rather than the temporal things of this world. Chapter number 3, verse 1, it says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. We have a lot of Christians who have spent their time and their attention and their affection on the temporal things of this world. How big can my house be? How nice can my car be? How, how many toys and boats and motorcycles and, and those things. None of those things are wrong. But when my time and affection is spent more for the things of this world than it is for the affection of love and obedience to God, I have misplaced my affections and my attentions from where God, the preeminent one, intended them to be, and I have now put my affections and my attentions on all the things that God has given us to allow us to have some happiness, not joy, joy is found only in Him, but some happiness along the way. And instead, what we've done is we've made the thing the points of our affections, rather than the one that has given it to us all. And we must turn back to giving our time, our affection, and our attention to the preeminent one. Number seven, intentional Christianity works to put on the things of Christ and to put off the old man. 
Colossians chapter 3 kind of makes a switch from this doctrinal understanding of where we are in God and what we have in God and who He is and the place that we have in God. And it starts to make this switch to a more practical understanding of what does it mean now that God is the preeminent one and if we hold Him to be what He is, what does that mean? The Bible tells us an understanding and something that's always been said to me is our beliefs should affect our behavior. In other words, what you believe about something should dictate how you respond. For example, I use this illustration with the teenagers, right? Teenagers, you guys remember this one? If you do, you can tell them later. If I had a torch up here and I started to set everything on fire, I'm not. Please understand, no torch, nothing in my hand. And I started to, to set everything on fire. Your belief that fire will hurt, this building is made of wood and it will burn, will cause you to do something. Hopefully it will cause you to get up and walk out of here. Your belief affects your behavior. Correct? Unless you're like Brother Trevor and then fire, firefighter, you have a belief that people's lives are worth saving and so you're going to put yours on the line to go into fire. Praise the Lord for our first responders. But your beliefs affect your behavior. Then why do so many Christians' behavior not represent what they say they believe? If you believe that He is the preeminent one, that He has the first place, He has the the, the say over everything, then why do we not live as if He has the say over everything? We make decisions without ever consulting Him. We make decisions without ever regarding what He would want. We make decisions without ever seeing what He would desire. We make decisions without ever saying to ourselves, how does this affect me, my testimony, my family, my work for God? It doesn't matter. I'll just do it. If it's good, it must be of God. False. Just because it's good doesn't mean it's of God. And we need to get to the point where we remember that that we we are setting our affections on God. It's, It's time to put on the things of Christ and put off the old man. It's time to to get to the point. And in this list of chapter number 3, he gets here in verse number 5. He starts saying all these things that we need to put off. Uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, idolatry, disobedience, because we were children of disobedience who walked in and now put off all these things. Anger. Many of us have anger problems. Wrath, which is unbridled, uncontrollable anger. Malice. Blasphemy. Filthy communication. Can I remind you, that that right there is not just talking about cuss words. It's talking about filthy communication in its entirety. Put it off. Lying not one to another. And then he goes on to say, look at all these things that we should put on. In verse number 12. Bowels of mercy. Kindness. Humbleness of mind. Meekness. Long-suffering. Forbearing one another. Forgiving one another. He goes on to talk about all these things that we should be putting on and putting off. Intentional Christianity number eight dwells in the Word and lets the Word of God dwell in them. Look at verse number 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. I encourage you, if you have a habit of marking things in your Bible... You should underline, circle, make that word known. It's not about letting the word of God just dwell in you. It should dwell in you richly. It should be abundant. If we think of a rich person, they have a lot of 
Oh, I didn't. I heard one person say it. they have a lot of what? Money, wealth, right? It, it flows. I think I, I'm a I'm a '90s kid. How many '90s kids do I have in here? Okay, some of them. You guys remember Ducktales, right? Do 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 do. Right, Ducktales and Uncle Scrooge. He was doing what? Diving into the money pit, right? There was a lot of wealth. You say, why are you going there? Because that's how the word of God should be like us. We should be able to just dive in and be able to pull a verse out that encourages us and helps us. Not go shuffling through the cobwebs and the dirt and the dust in the back of the closet somewhere of our mind and reaching back into this place and going, I know there's a verse in here somewhere for when I'm stressed. And I know there's a verse in here for somewhere when when things are going bad. And I just got to clear out all this other stuff and find it. Let me find that verse. That's because it's supposed to dwell in us richly. Be an Uncle Scrooge of the Bible. That there can be your picture, vivid middle picture. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry. You're, you're, you're a loss. I got Autumn back there because she knows exactly what I'm, she sees it and she understands it. It's time that we dwell in the word and let it dwell in us richly. Number nine. Intentional Christians live all aspects of their lives as unto the Lord. Would you look in verse number 17? It says, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I should forgive as unto the Lord. I should be the husband. It's interesting that the context of verse number 17, look at verse number 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as is fit in the Lord. Verse number 19, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Verse number 20, children, obey your parents. Verse number 21, fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. We get so burdened sometimes, parents, with the responsibility of of our parenting to our kids that we get so burdened down by the fact that, oh no, what if I, what if I, what I had these kids and, and they're my responsibility for God and what am I going to do? I don't know. Love them like you, like you would if it was God. Say, what do you mean? Are you saying, no, we're supposed to do all things as unto the Lord, right? Look, we are imperfect. We will mess up. We will do something wrong somewhere along the way with some of our kids. But if he's the preeminent one, and we've taken them and we've said, here's God. Let me show you God. Let me show you God in my discipline of you. Let me show you God in my mercy, in my grace. If I can do that, then at the end of the day, even when I messed up, they're still going to be able to sit there and say, my parents did the best that they could before me and God. And God is the preeminent one. His hands are the ones who do the true nurturing and admonition of our, of our children. It's interesting, the context is talking about servants in verse number 22. Talking about your work life. Obey in all things your master according. Verse number 23, and whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. When you work, you had best work as if you were working for God as your direct employee. In other words, that supervisor that you have who is the most annoying person in the world, who's lazy and does nothing, you know who I'm talking about, we all have some of those people. You had best work for them as if you were working for God and not for that person. This is Christianity. Paul is reminding us that in those moments, in those times, we have the opportunity to proclaim God to them. 
because we're living unto Him, Christ, the preeminent one, and not unto man. Number 10. Intentional Christians live prayer-filled lives full of thanksgiving. Would you look at me at chapter number 4, verse, uh, verse number 2. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. With all prayer also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. That I make it manifest as I ought to speak. So many of us as Christians, we say, well, I'm, I'm trying to be prayerful. I'm trying to have, we just went through 30 days of prayer and I pray that you were able to, to engage in that with our church. And, and, and yes, it, it is important for us to live prayer-filled lives. But more importantly, it is important for us to live prayer-filled lives full of thanksgiving. We wonder, some of us, God never hears my prayer. It doesn't matter how much I pray. It doesn't matter how much I, I ask. It doesn't matter how much I request. It never seems like God is ever answering my prayers. I cannot figure it out. Start here. When was the last time you gave full thanks for the things that he did answer that you didn't ask for? When was the last time you gave full thanks for the things you did ask for and he did answer? When was the last time you started with thanksgiving and ended with requests? The Bible makes always an emphasis of thanksgiving with prayer. This is Christianity. Christ is not a lifeline or a, 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 a telephone call where we pick up and it's a, well, what do you need resort? Here, let me, okay, this God, this is what I need. I'm in a, a difficult situation. Will you just answer it? No. The reason why Christ has many, many, many Christians live prayer-filled lives that are anemic prayer-filled lives is because they've stopped with thanksgiving. Notice what the Bible says here in this passage. In verse number 2, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. It is of my firm belief, and when you read the scriptures, that our thanksgiving should be equal to or greater than our asking. Did you catch that? Because here it says, continue in prayer with thanksgiving. They are hand in hand. Thanksgiving is not an aspect or part of prayer, so to speak, it goes hand in hand with. There should be as much thanksgiving. Say, I don't have anything to give God thanks for. Be careful. You're alive today. Say, yeah, but you don't know my life. No, I don't. But you have breath. And with every breath comes an opportunity for God's grace to be shown greater and greater. God help us to get past and over ourselves. We live in the wealthiest, freest, most opportunistic culture of all history. And we complain about what we don't have. And may I remind you, that we still live in a country where the majority of people still claim Christianity. So it's not all the non-Christians who are sitting complaining. It's time we look at ourselves. Number 11. Intentional Christians are ready to help those without the truth by speaking truth full of grace. Colossians 4, 5-6. 
Walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how ye ought to answer every man. We've gotten to a point in our lives as Christians where the people outside of this door don't want to hear what we have to say because for far too long we've been saying it as if we are the authority on the matters. We are not the authority. He is. And yet He has always said everything with love and compassion and grace. Do I, do I agree with this transgender movement that is happening in our nation and are at least trying to make itself more prevalent than it really is? No, I don't. Does that mean that I'm going to tear them down and bash them and call them names and yell and scream at the top of my lungs at their, their, their sin and the things that they've done wrong? Absolutely not. Does that mean that I won't call out and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong? No, I will proclaim the truth. But the Bible says, speaking the truth in love, always with grace. Man, we sure are ready to claim grace from everybody else and give it out so frequently. We're so stingy with our grace given. It's time that we as the church start living as intentional Christians. And I'd like to take you back to the very beginning. I said it when we started. 2 through 11 have nothing to really matter. They do if number one is not true. When Christ is preeminent, we understand we're reconciled before an almighty God and we thank Him, the preeminent one, for reconciling us. When Christ is preeminent, we can continue in His truth and move forward without giving up ground. When Christ is preeminent, we understand that we are complete in Him and we're happy to know that the preeminent one is where we find our identity. We don't have to look for the things of this world to make us a person or give us purpose. Our purpose is found in the preeminent one. When Christ is preeminent, we're free to live to Him and free from all of man's rules and requirements and lists of things that must be checked off, we can live free in Christ. When Christ is preeminent, it's easy to set our time, our affection, and our attention on Him. When Christ is preeminent, we can put off all the things that don't look like Christ. Because when He's number one, let's be honest, none of us want to be number two or number three or losers. We want to be like the number one, right? If we were playing basketball, we'd want to be like the number one basketball player. We'd want to have those traits. If we were playing baseball, we'd want to model our swing after the number one hitter out there. If we were baking cakes, we want to find the person who bakes the cakes the absolute best. And we want to know their secret recipe because that's what, that's what makes them the best, right? You would agree? Well, hey, it's time to put off all the things in the filth of this world and put on the one who's preeminent. We want to be like him because he's preeminent. If Christ is preeminent, then it's not a big deal to dwell in the word often because that's where he's found he reveals himself to us you show me how much time you show you spend and you study this and I'll tell you whether Christ is preeminent or not the same goes for me that's why the Bible says about itself that it is a mirror of the inner man When Christ is preeminent, we can live all aspects of our lives unto Him. I work for Him. I sing my songs to Him. I father unto Him. 
Children, I obey unto Him. Even when my parents get it wrong, I still am able to obey because I'm obeying Christ, not my mom and my dad. Parents, even when your kids are unruly and they're difficult, I'm able to show them love and grace and not provoke them under wrath because I'm parenting unto Him. If Christ is preeminent, it's easy to be thankful. And when Christ is preeminent, I can't help but talk about Him and tell others who may not know Him, you can know this God. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'd like to ask you a question. I'd actually like, I'd like to ask two questions if you don't mind. The first question I'd like to ask is to maybe those in this room who don't know Christ as your Savior. If you were to die today, are you 100% sure that you would die and go to to heaven? If your answer is no, I'm not 100% sure, then this question is for you. Would you be willing to let someone take the Word of God and show you this morning that you can be reconciled to this Almighty God? In just a moment... We'll all stand, and these altars will be open, and I'd like to invite you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you're not 100% sure, there are many people in this room that would love to take the Bible and show you that the almighty, unchanging God loves you, and He did all of this for you. The second question goes to those in the room who say they're Christians. I'd like to ask you a question. 